We're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. The, the message became flesh. And the message is now being conveyed in these final two chapters of the Gospel through the events of the resurrection, chapters 20 and 21. I don't know if y'all remember a few years back, there was a popular song by Taylor Swift that said something about, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. I don't know if you remember that song. Uh, have you ever felt that a relationship is so damaged, there's just no way to fix it? It's done, it's over. That's kind of where we find the guy we're going to be looking at today. He thought it was over, dead, irreparably damaged, but he was wrong. I've titled today's message, Surrendering Unfaith. We're in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Let's get started in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first of the week, and the doors having been locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and says to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced, having seen the Lord. This is still the day Jesus rose. This is still that same Sunday. And there's a lot that's gone on on that Sunday. John has chosen to tell us the events surrounding Mary Magdalene, who was the first person to physically interact with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so he, he chooses to follow that. Uh, there are other details he doesn't include. We're told in Luke's gospel that uh, throughout that day, Jesus accompanied a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and that was a seven-mile trek, so surely it took two and a half hours or, or perhaps more for them to make that journey, and when they arrived there and sat down to eat is when they recognized that it was Jesus, and then Jesus is gone and immediately they get up and do the seven mile trek all the way back to Jerusalem and Luke tells us they get there and they're telling all the other disciples that they've been visiting with Jesus for over two hours walking down the road and it's right after that according to Luke that this takes place so Luke and John are the ones that tell us of this Sunday evening appearance of Jesus to the disciples and uh, John mentions this, he mentions this a couple of times, that they're inside and the doors are locked, and he explains why they're afraid of the Jews. And again, he's not talking about every Jew in the world, he's talk, and that's kind of the shorthand John uses in his gospel to describe the Jewish leadership who uh, pretty much unanimously had decided to reject Jesus and had just succeeded in orchestrating the crucifixion of Jesus and his death. So obviously these people have killed Jesus and the disciples of Jesus are very understandably afraid of what the authorities are going to do now. And here it is Sunday and uh, the body's gone in the morning. The authorities had made sure that there were Roman soldiers there to secure the tomb so nobody would steal the body. And even so, the body is now gone. And they know that these Jewish authorities are trying to find answers. Where is Jesus and what's going on? And did some disciple steal the body and if so let's find them and make sure they give it back so they they were 
understandably worried about what the Jews might do. And right then, as they're inside locked doors, Jesus is standing in their midst. Now, John does not explain how this happened, probably because he didn't know. All he knows is the doors were locked. One minute Jesus isn't there, the next minute Jesus is there. How that happened, John has no clue any more than any of us today have any clue, but that's what happened. There he was, right in the middle of the group of them. Now you might think then, oh, well that probably means that they were seeing a ghost or having a mass hallucination. Maybe the candles were too, too, uh, burning too much and, and cut down the oxygen or something. But uh, we know from Luke's account of this, that, and, and it coincides with details that John tells us here, that Jesus was very intent to make sure they understood not only that it was him by showing them the mark of the nails in his hands and the, the mark of the spear in his side, uh, assuring them that it was him physically and asking them to touch him and say, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone like you can see that I have not only that but he says do y'all have anything to eat and he sits and eats with them and you know ghosts don't eat apparitions don't eat food mass hallucinations don't do that so uh, there's a lot that goes on here that Jesus is providing the disciples with the tangible evidence that they are going to need for their witness about him and uh, John gives us less of that detail than Luke does. Uh, but there they are, and however it is, the risen Lord Jesus seems to be operating on a different scale than the way he worked before the resurrection. And, and there's something mysterious about the resurrection body. And uh, clearly it's, it's, a, it's another order of existence, something unique in all of creation. There's no other human being that is immortal and glorified the way Jesus now is. So there are things about how he's interacting that are different than they were before because of the nature of resurrection. Uh, it's almost like this reality this universe is not capable of fully interacting with him uh, because he's so glorious and so transcendent in his resurrection so but but there he is right in their midst and locked doors apparently are no challenge for the risen Lord he's right there and uh, it's interesting the contrast between them huddled there in fear of the Jews and the first thing Jesus says to them, peace be with you. Now that was the standard Jewish uh, greeting and it remains so to this day, shalom. Uh, when Jews greet each other, they speak peace upon each other. In fact, even Muslims have uh, adopted the same practice. In Arabic, they say salam. Uh, which is a similar term, but it means the same thing. You're speaking peace over each other. But this is more than just a hello, more than just a culturally accepted way of greeting one another. Jesus is speaking peace on the hearts of disciples who are very frightened at this moment and very confused. And for many of them there, they've heard bits and pieces. There are some people who say they've actually seen Jesus, others who say angels told them that Jesus is alive, uh, but they're still not quite sure what to make of it. Yeah, Mary's seen him, Peter's seen him, but, but who knows what we should make of all of this? Are they just 
Is this just kind of mass hysteria? Has the grief gotten too big for them and, and they're just seeing things? What's going on? And then all of a sudden, Jesus is there and the first thing he says is peace. In Isaiah, Jesus, the Messiah, is described as several things, among them Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, uh, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Jesus truly has come to bring peace in both senses, in the sense of calming our fears about everything that is beyond our control in the universe because it is not beyond his control. And because of Jesus, we can have peace regardless of what else may be going on because nothing escapes his hand but also peace in the sense of what he has done about the problem of sin. If sin has put us at war with God and with each other and with the world itself, if we are no longer able to love the way we were meant to, if we are now hostile in every way to every person and thing around us, Jesus has come to bring peace. The Apostle Paul talks about that. How Jesus has destroyed the barrier, the separating barrier of hostility and made us all one. And he is our peace. Jesus is not only the one who gives peace. He himself is that peace. The reality of it is bound up in the person of who he is. Peace be with you. When he says this, and this coincides with Luke's account of this, he shows them. And in Luke, we have words. He says, touch me and see that I'm not a spirit. And the disciples rejoice that they have seen the Lord. Let's continue in verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so also I am sending you. And having said this, he breathed on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they have been forgiven them. If you retain those of anyone, they have been retained. So you might notice when Jesus repeats things, normally it's because there's something significant about them that he wants to make sure we remember, that we don't forget. So again, he says in the very same conversation, in the very same setting, it's not like three days later, right then, the very next thing he says is once more he says, peace be with you. We need to understand that our peace, both relationally and within, is secured by Jesus. And then he talks about purpose. Jesus doesn't just want to bring peace to our hearts and bring peace to our relationships. He has a task for us. He says, just the way the Father sent me, that's exactly the way I'm sending you. Now, we have read in the Gospel of John, and Jesus has been very clear that he didn't just show up out of nowhere, but that he was very intentionally sent into the cosmos by the Father to save the cosmos, not condemn it, but to save it. And Jesus is now telling his disciples that I am sending you with exactly the same sense that the Father sent me into the world. 
Ponder for a moment what that means about the purpose for your life. That your purpose in life, and this is very much the way Jesus described his purpose in being here among us, is that we participate in the Father's redemption of the world. And we might say, there's no way I can do that. I'm not Jesus. Which is why then he breathed on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So the task really isn't ours. It has to be done by God himself. And we have to be in spirit-to-spirit communion with him to participate in this sending that is happening. There's something reminiscent here of Genesis 2-7 where God first formed the first human being from the dust of the earth and there was, it was just a human body until God breathed into him and then he became a living soul. This is reminiscent of Ezekiel 37 where he had this vision of a valley filled with cadavers who were so long gone all that was left was a bunch of bones, dry bones lying across the valley. And God gathered the bones together and connected them as they were supposed to be and then uh, tendons and muscles came back on them and skin covered the bodies but even then they were all dead until God tells Ezekiel prophesy to the breath and tell the breath to breathe on them the breath of God and in the vision Ezekiel prophesies and the breath of God comes into them and they become a mighty army in the same sense Jesus is breathing life into the disciples As God Almighty, he is breathing into them the very breath of life, the very Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus is making it clear that the Holy Spirit, in connection with our spirit, that is the way in which we carry out this being sent into the world as the Father sent Jesus. And what's involved in this work? Well, here's something very strange. There's, Jesus uses some odd verb tenses. If you forgive anyone's sins, they have been forgiven them. If you retain those of anyone, they have been retained. A lot of translations kind of try to clean up the verb tenses there, and I think they obscure some of the meaning in the process. I think that perfect tense is very intentional. What, what are we saying here? Are we saying then that Jesus is saying to his disciples, you now get to play God and you get to tell people, you get to be forgiven, you don't. I like you, I'll forgive your sins, I'm not going to forgive your sins. Is that what he's saying? Well, I think if we look at the whole Bible and the whole New Testament, it's very clear that's not what Jesus is saying to the disciples. In fact, the way he arranges the verb tenses here, I think, make that clear. But consider how this task of rescuing the world works. We do that by sharing what the New Testament writers described as good news. Euangelion, the good message. Uh, we, we share the, the good message of forgiveness of sins. Jesus on the cross has paid and has redeemed and covered all of our sins so that we may be forgiven and redeemed and rescued eternally and given the gift of the Holy Spirit and life eternal. 
That's the message we proclaim. If somebody responds to that message in faith and says, I want, I want that. I will put my trust in Jesus and I will allow him to take my life and do of it what he will and I will be forgiven and I will receive this life. If somebody does that in response to what we've told them, they discover that their sins are already forgiven. 2,000 years ago, that was taken care of. The forgiveness of sins is an accomplished deal that they, we get to participate in the present, but it's something that happened 2,000 years ago. Those sins were already forgiven at the cross. Also, as we share the gospel, we share the warning. If you read in the book of Acts the sermons where the different people in Acts are sharing the gospel, they always conclude that message with some variation on this. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. Therefore, repent and believe. In the gospel presentation, there's also a declaration of the dangers involved in rejecting the salvation Christ has accomplished. If you reject it, if you say, I'm too busy, oh, I'm not sure this is for me, I don't really care for it, it might work for you, I don't want it, whatever your excuse is, if you say no, then your sins have already been retained in God's tally against you. God will one day judge the living and the dead, and the only way those sins can be removed from the divine tally is faith in Jesus. Which means you buy into the release that was accomplished 2,000 years ago. But if you do not accept it, you do not receive it, then those sins of yours have already been retained. That was your situation already before you heard the gospel. You have just sealed your doom by rejecting the one offer you had of escape from that. So it isn't that Jesus is saying we somehow willy-nilly decide who lives and who dies but that we are speaking eternal life and eternal death with the people with whom we are sharing this gospel message. That is how we go about saving the world. That is how Jesus went about saving the world. He talked about love and forgiveness, and he also warned about the consequences of spurning that. That these consequences are horrendous and eternal. Which means that when Jesus says, I'm sending you just the way the Father sent me, the purpose of our lives is tied up in a matter of eternal life and death. And we need the Holy Spirit to be able to do it. That's why on Monday nights we're praying together as a church family. We're here at 6 p.m. and we are devoting our time of prayer to asking God to work, to do what he wants to do, to build his kingdom among us and to guide us and show us what it is that he wants. Because we can only be sent as the Father sent the Son if we follow the pattern that the Son himself demonstrated for us. When Jesus was here, even though he was God himself in the flesh, he had to make time to pray and ask the Father for guidance and strength and direction. And if Jesus couldn't do it without that, we can't either. 
We have to seek the guidance of God by his Holy Spirit and for him to do the work which only God can do in the lives and hearts of those we're trying to reach. Jesus told his disciples he was sending them just the way the Father had sent him to bring a message of forgiveness of sins and a warning of their retention. How are you carrying out this calling today in your life? And we're going to get to the point now where we start talking about Thomas. And I think it's good for us to review a little bit about what we know about Thomas. John is the one who actually gives us details about Thomas. The first happens in chapter 11 where Jesus is with his disciples up in uh, Galilee. And they've left Jerusalem because they wanted to stone Jesus. Um, I can't remember. I think maybe it was when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to stone him, but he goes back up to Galilee. And when he's up there in Galilee, he gets word from Mary and Martha that their brother Lazarus is sick. And Jesus spends two more days up there in Galilee and then says, okay, let's go down there. And the disciples say, Jesus, why are you crazy? They want to stone you. They want to kill you. Why are you going to put yourself in danger by just going down there? And Jesus says, uh, well, we're going to go anyway. And then and Jesus is talking about it. He's asleep. And uh, the disciples think, well, if he's sleeping, that's good. He'll, he'll recover. And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. I mean, what I mean is he's dead. And uh, this is where verse 16 of chapter 11. So Thomas, the one called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. It seems like Thomas was not the cheerful guy in the group of disciples. He wasn't the guy always telling jokes, and, and he seems like a very serious person. And I think there's something I read in this of kind of some grim determination. Okay, if Jesus wants to go down there and get himself stoned, and if Lazarus is already dead, I don't know why we're even going down there, but if Jesus insists, if this is going to cost us our life, then we're all in. That's it. Let's go. If, we have to, if he has to die, we'll die too. I think that tells us that Thomas was uh, a bit of a glass-half-empty type of guy, but he was also very much grimly determined to follow Jesus wherever that led. And if that meant die, then you die. Next time we hear Thomas say something is in chapter 14 where Jesus is in this last day with the disciples and he's sitting with them and he tells them, I am about to leave and I'm going somewhere you guys can't come with me. But don't worry, if I go and I prepare a place, I will come back and I will bring you with me so that where I am you may be also and you know the way to where I am going. And then in verse 5, Thomas speaks up. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? I'm sure Thomas at that moment looked around the room and saw a bunch of dumbfounded disciples who looked just as clueless as he was and he talks to Jesus and says, what are you talking about? What do you mean we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. Just stop talking in riddles. Give me an answer. And Jesus does give him an answer. I 
am the way and the truth and the life. You want to know your destination? No one comes to the Father except by me. So Jesus told him the way and the destination. But I think this tells us that Thomas was somebody who did not love metaphor and uh, kind of the, the spiritualized teachings. I think he was very much a concrete thinker, and he wanted things in black and white, and he wanted things that felt to him tangible and real. I can't imagine what, for him, the events of the past three days had been. I'm sure he was uh, feeling two things. I think he was deeply hurt that Jesus had left him. And I think he was embarrassed that he had failed Jesus. He thought he was willing to die with Jesus, but he found out, just like all the other disciples did, that there wasn't a one of them that was willing. They all ran. And I'm sure in that Saturday, they were all sitting around, and I bet they, were, they had a hard time making eye contact with one another because they were all ashamed that they had abandoned Jesus and let him be killed. And maybe he was angry at Jesus. Why did Jesus not let them try to defend him? Why did he tell Peter to put the sword away? Why did he let them just grab him and take him off? And why did the Father let them nail him to a cross and die under God's very curse? Why? It doesn't make any sense. And I think that's where we find Thomas. Let's read verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never ever believe. Do you get the sense that Thomas was having a crisis of faith? That somehow he felt like everything he had believed, everything he had trusted was pulled out from under him and he said, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You are not fooling me twice. I'm not falling for this and I don't care what all these flighty women have to say about what they think they saw or, or what angels they think they ran into and Peter, who knows what's going on with him, but I don't believe any of it. You're all suffering some kind of mass hysteria and I'm not falling for it again. He uses that double negative. I will no not believe. Thomas felt that his hope in Jesus had proven false. He said he would not be fooled by what others said about Jesus. Have you ever experienced a crisis of faith like Thomas? Let's keep reading. Verse 26. And eight days later, his disciples were again inside, 
and Thomas with them. Jesus comes, the doors having been locked, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Uh, I think the custom at this time was kind of like uh, I've noticed with some of the Hispanics I've met here in this country that when they say eight days later, they mean the same day of the following week. So I would call that seven days. But So we're probably talking about the next Sunday, uh, not, not Monday. But, you know, a week later, uh, same situation. The disciples are inside. This time Thomas, Thomas happens to be with them. The doors are locked, just like they were the first time. And boom, there's Jesus right in the middle. And again, he begins by speaking peace. And boy, if all the disciples needed to hear that a week ago, I suspect Thomas really needed to hear that on this day. Peace. I, I read in Thomas's words the, a, a heart that is broken and that has given up on trusting anything. And I'm sure he was in pain and in agony when Jesus said, Peace be with you. Again, the Prince of Peace shows up. He who is our peace. And now he directs his attention to Thomas directly. Verse 27, then he says to Thomas, bring your finger here and put it and see my hands. Bring your hand and put it into my side. And be not unbelieving, but believing. Jesus addresses Thomas directly and actually says to him the things he was not supposedly present to hear him say a week ago. He knows what Thomas had said. And he offers him the opportunity to do exactly what he said he would need to do. Put your finger in the mark in my hands. Put your hand in my side. And here's... Uh, the instruction from Jesus. Do not be unbelieving. Ah, pistos. Faith with the negative particle before it. Unfaith. Non-faith. Don't be a person who is marked by unfaith. Be a person who is faithing. I will say something about this. You might read this and say, oh, so that's how God works. I can just tell him what he has to do to convince me, and he'll do it. I will tell you this is an exception to the general practice we observe of the way God acts. Most of the time when we demand things from God, we don't get much answer. God doesn't jump when we say jump. So it's, it's an act of humility and divine condescension on God's part to actually address exactly what Thomas had demanded. Normally, God does not work that way, so don't expect him to work that way in your life. But in this one situation, Jesus did exactly what Thomas said he needed and provided him with what he said he would need to believe. And he said, give up your unfaith. Become a faither. Start faithing. Be a person marked by trust in me. 
How does Thomas respond to this? You know, we're never told that he actually touched Jesus and did all the stuff. Um, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. This is the climax of John's gospel. His whole gospel has been written to bring his reader to this point. And perhaps he chose Thomas as the perfect example of somebody who was uh, way on the other side. You know, John is the mystic. He loves all this spiritual talk and all these uh, allegorical things. And you can tell just by reading the gospel, he's, he's full on into this. But Thomas was the opposite end of the spectrum. Somebody who was not uh, a spiritualizing type person. He was a very concrete thinker. And John chooses him as the one to voice for the reader what he hopes the reader will come to accept about Jesus. Not just that he's some impressive rabbi or teacher, not just that he's some magician that does, performs parlor tricks for the crowds, but that he is everything he said he is. That he is Lord God Almighty. And that he desires to be my Lord and my God. He wants this personal relationship of creator to created, but a one-on-one -on -one relationship. He wants the reader to come to that point of Thomas, of saying, Jesus, I acclaim you as my Lord and my God. Verse 29, Jesus says to him, Because you have seen me, you believe? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And here's, uh, I think, part of the reason. Jesus did allow Thomas to, to touch him and to do the things he said he would need to believe, not because God just jumps every time we say jump and he will accommodate our demands of him anytime we choose to do so. Don't expect that because God seldom, if ever, does that. But in this case, he did it. It was part of providing the first level of witnesses about his resurrection, all of the tangible proofs that would be necessary to ground the gospel message to root it in genuine history. Uh, so he does that. But notice the teaching that Jesus brings out of all of this. He says, the reason you believe, Thomas, is that you saw me. It's because you are given the chance to touch me. That's the reason you believe? You know, there's a better way to come to belief. There are other ways to see. There are other ways to know truth. There are other ways to interact with me. And putting your fingers on my hand and wrist and putting your hand in my side may seem like the most important thing in the world, but there are more significant ways to have an encounter with me. I've had that kind of an encounter. I had an encounter with Jesus when I was 14 years old that changed my soul irrevocably. 
And it didn't matter after that point what emotional experiences I had or didn't, the things that have happened or not happened in my life. I was stamped in my soul in that day in a way that was irrevocable. To this day, I am what I am because of what God did in that moment. And you know what? I didn't see a thing. I didn't touch a thing. Jesus says, if you think physical interaction is the height of, of proof you need for interacting with God, you are setting your sights on the least important aspect of what a relationship with God is going to be about. There's a greater blessing on those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And I think very clearly, John, writing this decades after Jesus has ascended back to the Father, it's been decades since anybody has interacted physically with Jesus. He knows everybody who's come to believe since then has come to believe without seeing. There is a greater blessing on us. You might think, oh, I wish I could be Thomas. Then my faith would be this great, wonderful thing. And if we have to believe what Jesus tells us, he's us that would not make it better it would not be a superior interaction with me than what I have given you there's a greater blessing the way it's going to work and for Thomas the rest of his life with Jesus is not going to be the way it was before him sitting at his feet listening to him talk watching him perform miracles and do things no it's gonna be a completely new way and the Holy Spirit that Jesus just breathed on them is gonna be the way the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ himself is going to be the guiding force in his life And he's going to participate in that blessing of interacting with Jesus in a non-physical way because the spirit-to-spirit -spirit interaction is more profound and more significant than the mere physical one. Verse 30, Now Jesus also did indeed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which have not been written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that believing you may have life in his name. That would be a great way to end the book, but he's going to add an appendix, chapter 21. But here, John does something very few biblical authors do. He actually sits down and says, let me tell you why I wrote this book. First he says, Jesus did a whole lot of other miraculous things. I love that John describes Jesus' miracles as signs. And he reminds us that Jesus wasn't just performing parlor tricks and saying, ta-da, look what I can do, but that every single one of his miraculous deeds was a teaching moment that pointed to something profound beyond the mere miracle itself. They were signs that pointed to something. And he says, I've only told you a few. There were so many signs that Jesus did that the disciples were eyewitnesses to. I have been deliberately selective about the signs I am telling you about. The ones I did write, I crafted this story together for you and told you the details I felt were pertinent so that you could come to believe not be unfaithing, but be faithing 
in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, King of kings, come to establish the eternal kingdom of God, who wasn't just a great man, but was God himself, Yahweh, eternal, come to us in the flesh to redeem and establish the kingdom of God and deal definitively with the problem of sin and death forever. And that by believing, we may have life in his name. Jesus is life. He doesn't just give it. If you don't know Jesus, you're a walking dead. You're an animated corpse. You have no idea what life is about. Because life is in God, inseparably. And as long as we are at odds with God and we are hostile to God and we are trying to be the God of my own life and ousting the only legitimate God from the throne of my life, as long as that is the condition of our hearts, we're dead. There is no life anywhere but in Jesus. So why this whole gospel? What have we been talking about for the past year? Jesus has come to give you life. All it takes from you is faith. Release the unfaith. And hold tight to faith. And that will give you life. Jesus told Thomas that there are better paths to faith than just seeing with our physical eyes. How is a spiritual encounter with Jesus more reliable and profound than any physical one could ever be? Maybe you, like Thomas, have had a bumpy road with Jesus. Maybe you have failed him in some way. Perhaps you think Jesus has left you on your own when you thought you really needed him. Maybe you understand Thomas's need for Jesus to show up tangibly in his life. Not in somebody else's. I don't want to hear how Jesus did something great for somebody else. I want him to do it in my life. I want Jesus to come meet me and give me a reason to put my faith in him. We face moments like these. When life pulls the rug out from under our feet and we're left spinning, we're thrown flat on our faces, we're bruised, we're stunned. But Jesus challenges us to reject the path of unfaith. Where we respond to the hurt by shutting ourselves off from God and from others. We retreat into ourselves where we think we can control everything. But you know what? It's a lie. It doesn't work. I can't even control myself, much less the world around me. Jesus calls us to faith. He calls us to live in dependence on him. Exposed connected in a mysterious walk with the Holy Spirit within, navigating days when he speaks so clearly and loudly, we weep for joy, and also days where we struggle to even hear him speak. This reaching out is the lifeblood of our walk with God, this thing we call faith. We choose to trust. We choose to depend 
we choose to worship him alone, to trust in him alone, to surrender our hearts to him alone as our Lord and God. Faith makes us envoys of Jesus, sent into the world to announce the condemnation of sin that God has already decided along with the forgiveness of sins he has already made available for anyone who will put their faith in Jesus. Anyone! We become ambassadors for faith in a world of unfaith. Will you be a faither? Will you join this task? Sustained by the power of God's Holy Spirit. We have now a time where we can respond to God's word. Let's all stand. We're going to have some people at the back behind the blinds on either side if y'all go there now. This is your time to respond. Let me tell you, if you have not surrendered your heart to Jesus in faith, if you're still trying to do it on your own, I want to challenge you today to give up your unfaith and to embrace faith in Jesus and the life and the purpose that comes with that alone. Maybe you know Jesus and you haven't been devoting yourself to the things he has called you to. You have not allowed him to send you into the world the way the Father sent him into the world and you need to recommit yourself to what he's calling you to. Whatever God has laid on your heart, go to the back here and take the hand of of the people there. Let them pray with you and encourage you. Come while we sing.